it's been interesting navigating as a powerful femme through space and time. Where was there ever a time where women were in complete sovereign power and like Mm -hmm. had complete agency over their body and that they were even worshipped outside of like fetishization, but like actually really honored for their skills and their intellect. Prophecies have foretold and wisdom keepers all know that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast, we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shayna Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Hello and welcome back to another Time of the Feminine podcast episode. I am very excited to have a sister on the podcast today, Michaela Delamico, and she actually lives in my hometown of San Diego, California. And so we're hoping that we can sit together in circle one day. But she is a multicultural, first-generation, Italian, Afro-Caribbean, and indigenous Mexican woman who has lived in Los Angeles, now San Diego, and her education path has led her down the ways of sacred intimacy work and the temple arts, indigenous Mexican ceremony, womb healing, facilitation, and the Ma'at tradition, and all under the care of colorful variety of teachers and guides. She's now living in San Diego, occupied Kauia and Kumeyaay territory with her family and friends. In her journey as a mushroom mother, she was called to create virtual and in-person spaces for psychedelic families and birthing people. Her primary focus is medicine work, to hold community in small group spaces where people can journey through the dark amenta, to uncover their ancestor codes, explore and enjoy the body, and heal sexual trauma wounds with mushroom medicine while keeping barriers for entry low. Thank you so much, Michaela, for being on the podcast. I can't wait to explore all of these things and the medicine that you have for our audience. Thank you so much for having me. It's actually been years and years in the making wanting to connect and create with you. So I'm really happy we're here at this time and um, that our roads have guided us to be here. Yeah. So, you know, this, this podcast is about this time that we're living in and obviously your work has a lot of focus in helping people kind of unravel themselves and their layers in this time that's emerging. And so I'm curious for you, the time of the feminine, what does that mean? Thank you for yeah posing this question. What the real sense is and what the history is kind of showing and laying out for us is that in some places of the world, this power of the feminine, this mother energy was in a much more balanced place, maybe about 2,600 years ago or so, before really the rise of Judeo-Christian ideologies and Mm -hmm. ideologies set to kind of oppress through fear and coercion. And since these kind of origin stories, this origin story around Eve, right? This belief Mm -hmm. that That woman um, and this ideology that woman is made to serve man, just like Mother Nature um, was just built to serve man and to be in its dominion. Since the creation of these stories and myth really plays a huge role in the way people view the world, it just informed a series of so many decisions that kind of moved and was brought upon different levels of power. And as time grew, and we progressed into our human relationships into maybe the 16th century during the European witch trials. We just really have seen the separation of people from land, the separation Mm. of people from 
homesteading practices and practices that are very self-sufficient and mm-hmm. honestly related to human beings' connection to their own body and Mother Earth and sustenance living. And honestly, during those times in the rise of capitalism, we just saw so much shift in consciousness around what is the nature of the body? Are we machine or are we sacred? And this time of the feminine, I really am seeing is like the children of earth reclaiming their rightful place as sacred, spiritual, non-machine, whole sovereign folks. And maybe it's being led by the women, you know, the women healers, but I'm also seeing a variety of different colors of people gender expressions of people. And so it's a, it's an evolution back to mother nature, our spiritual selves and indigenizing to our motherlands. And I think that's where mother plays a big role is mother earth, mother nature, and the nature of being parented and parenting in a way that aligns with earth values and not capitalism and imperialism. Wow, that was just such medicine soundbite. Thank you for speaking. <laughs> like, okay, we're done. <laughs> Got the podcast. But you said everything that needs to be said. Yeah, that's such truth. I mean, I, I agree with you and all these, in the way that I've studied too, that kind of, you know, 2,600 years ago with the story of Eve and like all the research and studying I've done with Anne Baring, that, you know, this kind of shift happened in consciousness. And, you know, it's it's super interesting and I'm curious what you think about this too, but because the mass consciousness shifted to this way of thinking that the feminine was here as like a resource to be extracted, you know, and kind of commoditized, like how that expanded to even communities that weren't touched by colonization. You know, like I work with Amazonian traditions that very much have strong patriarchal communities. And it's so interesting because it's almost like the consciousness was so strong everywhere else that it seeped into all these places, even where it couldn't physically touch Mm. it would be it would we'd be hard-pressed to imagine a world that actually has not been in some way impacted by imperialism well now yeah for sure and yeah absolutely the machismo energy i'm mexican and so there's big machismo in latin america yeah and i think it's definitely getting it's it's definitely getting its cues from imperialism Uh but also not to say that like pre-colonization that there wasn't also like an emphasis on male leadership. There's actually been, I think, largely an emphasis on male leadership. And Mm -hmm. it's been interesting navigating as a powerful femme through space and time. Where was there ever a time where women were in complete sovereign power and like Mm -hmm. had complete agency over their body and that they were even worshipped outside of like fetishization like actually really honored for their skills and their intellect we have a few figures throughout mythology that kind of show us that this powerful femme and we get icons like the venus of wollendorf and hapshetsut which was the first female pharaoh you know Mm. and even in those days she was also regarded as kind of like a clown and like people would make fun of her and write graffiti about her you know call her a man and like she even started to sport like a beard to be taken more seriously so i would love to see actually at this time a complete reimagining of what a powerful femme can be mm-hmm. and a so self-determined way of doing it because honestly it's we've it's been a long time and I don't know if we have a really wonderful model for how matriarchal living really takes place, except maybe in the indigenous tribes of North America, where Mm -hmm. there, you know, wisdom councils and councils of elder women making decisions. But for the most part, even in communities that have not been colonized, there is still a hierarchy system in place. And I would love to see that shift. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, there's so much here. It's like the juiciest conversation in my opinion. But even today, you know, like I feel that I'm I'm now stepping into my self more than ever, you know, mm-hmm. but I, you know, ugh, overcoming so much doubt, so much confusion, like feels like an entity. You know what I mean? Like this mm-hmm. voice that comes and it's like, you're not good enough. Everybody's talking about you. Like 
first of all, like that, I'm not important. And, you know, <laughs> like all these kinds of really harsh things. And anyways, I'm overcoming that. And now I'm kind of in this phase of like, yeah, what is, what does leadership look like? You know, what does mm. feminine leadership look like? How do we walk in a new way? How do we be what it is we seek? Mm. And there's really this amazing opportunity in front of us. Um, and so I'm curious about like what you feel is the, the new kind of leadership that you'd like to see in the world. As you were kind of speaking, I was just visualizing what it looks like and, and how it's happening. And what I've been seeing as far as collective, you know, work is happening is I'm seeing power through artistic collaboration. Mm. That's where so many of us are like gaining traction, building platforms, creating a space for our own voice to exist. It's through organizations that are self-sufficient and self-governed, openly communicating, sharing, skill sharing, powerful people, skill sharing. And that's a collective power. And it's a very circular power and in a power that's being very well distributed, very mycelial in its way. And I really found that my time spent with the mushroom and learning to sit within mushroom circles and in focused care circles, you know, care circles that were, you know, we are gathering together for a particular intention all together to share a collective energy. And just because you call the circle doesn't make you the most important person in the circle. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I've been able to learn from the mushroom has been around I'm not eating the mushroom to become a better human. I'm eating the mushroom to learn how to be a mushroom. Mm. And how do mushrooms organize themselves, you know, in language, communication, resource sharing, giving, and helping other organisms team with life. And so leadership for me looks community appointed and it looks like it leads horizontally. It looks like it appoints people into roles and positions that they are naturally growing into. And I think circles have wonderful opportunity to allow us to do that in real time. Um, and it's also looking like when we lead that we accept criticism and that we allow our actions to be as transparent as possible so that we can grow by that visibility and being accountable as fuck to our actions is not easy to do, but I think it's the best leadership that we can uh, model is a leadership that at least owns up to its mistakes and makes actionable steps to repair itself. Mm. Wow. So, I had this vision yesterday and it was like, you know, in all this time I've kind of been in the forest. And so when I fall, I fall into the bushes, but now I'm entering this time where there's a cliff and I can see this vista out in front. And then there's like a tiny little narrow walkway and like on any side you fall. But what you said there about the transparency and like the alignment that's necessary and the correcting yourself, like there's no more time. Like, okay, I've learned all the, like, I, I know I haven't learned all the lessons, but I know kind of like what my things are, like where I can kind of get out of alignment. Mm -hmm. And like, there's actually not space for that anymore. Like the, the pathway is getting really narrow and you know, it's, everything's becoming much more transparent. So who do you want to mm -hmm. be? And I think mm -hmm. this is what that time, this time is calling for, like what you're talking about, like taking mushrooms, mm -hmm. like you, you are becoming the mushroom in, mm -hmm. in those landscapes, you know, like tree systems, for example, I don't know as much about mushrooms, but with tree landscapes, you know, if one tree needs something, the other tree is able to provide resource. There's complete transparency there. You know, mm -hmm. the trees know what each tree is getting. Like, you know, mm -hmm. there's kind of like a system working together and the network kind of allows for what's needed to go to the places that it's needed. And mm. I feel that that kind of thinking mm. is what's going to take us to the next mm. phase of collective transformation. Absolutely. And 
this evolution is absolutely being led by young people. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us who maybe had recreational relationship with mushrooms in the past and, you know, we're kind of flagrant with like our energy and our purpose are now really at this time. I mean, some of us are nearing our 30th year. Some of us are a little bit past our 30th year, but I'd say anyone really between the ages of like 22 and 40 are, are very important right now. And in, in that we are the people generating the energy for the shift to occur. And we are taking the notes of and applying the teachings of our elders, you know, and really applying them to what the next hundred years is going to look like. And like the mushrooms, they are teaching us and showing us to be very efficient. Hmm. And efficiency is godlike right now. You know, as you said, the tightrope is like so thin and we don't have a lot of room for mistakes, you know? And so I really urge young people to get really refined, really refine our craft, you know, and that's, what's going to be really important is, yeah, we've been floundering a little bit, but one of the applications for the sacred mushroom in a traditional context is to actually reveal to us what we were born to do. It's part of its nature to illuminate our purpose and meaning in this world. And so the more we sit with that and really ask the mushroom, like, why am I here? And what am I here to do? And how can I do it the best that I can? She really has the opportunity to teach us that. And we could be spending our time discovering and refining and becoming as mycelial as possible. And the mycelia is highly effective, highly adaptive to its environment and optimizes benefit for all beings that it comes in contact with. And that's what I'm really praying that this generation, this rise of the feminine, like is really anchored in is how do we create a world that really serves all beings, whatever your expression is, whatever your age is, whatever your beliefs are, um, because we don't need to help just the people we think deserve the help. All folks deserve to really be uplifted by our actions. So I totally feel you, especially, you know, this platform is gaining, you know, a lot of traction. It it has to be held accountable. It is highly visible. And I know it's really hard when a lot of people are looking at you, you know, to make a mistake in front of your community. But no matter what, how thin that is, I think what's underneath that, you know, platform that we're so carefully walking is actually the support of the people who have been following our story for a long time and honestly rooting for us. And I think in that voice that you were talking about in your mind, that it feels like an entity or like an energy that is trying to defeat us. It's the programming that we've had since kids, that the things that we put out aren't valuable, that people are out to get us and honestly reinforced by our peers. And so I want everyone to know also that when you take the leap towards doing something that's really kind and good for the world, yeah, maybe there's going to be people who don't appreciate you, but the vast majority, they really do. They really do want to see you grow and they do really want to see a, a, a better world. And some of us have been called to leadership and to creating a better world. And I think people want to see that and they want to support that. Mm. Your words are like nectar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm grateful. I'm so grateful that you are out there doing your work. And it's true because when, yeah, like when I see you, when I see other women that I know and men and other people who are doing good work, you know, and working on themselves, like I know how hard it is. You know, I know how much you've had to look at yourself and all of your shit Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how you keep looking too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, reflection is definitely key. And a lot of us creatives have like these kinds of ebbs and flows where I'm like, I need to, I have the energy to do so much output right now. And I also really pray that in this time of the feminine and in this way of like understanding that we are not machine and that earth has resting periods, that when our creative output goes down, that those are absolutely key and important times to sit in reflection and contemplation, to be still and allow ourselves to really soak in and integrate what we've been creating for the last, you know, in these seasons. 
And that's a big part of this indigenizing process is to also recognize time, to recognize the body and recognize our relationship with the external world as cyclical with mm-hmm. ebbs and flows that require our our appreciation. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, thank you for seeing my work and for also like, you know, being in this, in this movement in a way that hopefully also honors the rest that you need to participate in too. Cause uh, I love the sister who she runs like a sleep ministry and she says the revolution will be well rested. And I really Mm -hmm. believe that. I so believe that too. There was a period (laughs) of my life where I was not well rested. And this is the period that we were talking about before the podcast where um, there was a period in Global Sisterhood's time where I actually made contact with Michaela over email and then I completely fell off. And and in that period, like we were not resting, Lauren and I were not resting and everything fell apart, you know, including, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> doing things that I now I'm saying sorry for. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I fully believe that we have to take care of ourselves and and mm-hmm. that and that the essence of our creation changes when we are actually practicing you know? Yeah. It's actually helps to refine our skills. Um, Mm -hmm. like Albert Einstein would be working on a problem and then go take a nap and then be illuminated like with the breakthrough that then allowed him to like go back and continue. And I think when we get pushed into things and coerced into acting in ways that support grind culture, that we actually do our work and our mission in the world less effectively. Yeah, because if you can't enjoy this journey, what's the point? There's nowhere to go. <laughs> oh, what about retirement? You just be able to mm. sleep, you know, at the very end of your life when, you know. And I just, just like I, to pesticide golf course. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm just like, why can't we enjoy our time now? I and I and I honestly feel like retirement and this whole like capitalist idea around oh, well, if you work X amount of time, then you can have your break and then like you're good. I think it really actually follows the model of like the Judeo-Christian. Well, if you're really good in your whole life and like accept all the abuses that we are handing down to you, that you'll have a better life afterwards. It's like an insurance policy on your spirit. (laughs) Oh my gosh. They've been selling insurance all this time. Oh my God. Thank you for illuminating that for me because I- Spiritual insurance. (laughs) Yeah. I never thought of that. That's so interesting. It's, It's the same thing. It's the complete it's, it's, same they're thing. They're working off the the same model, pretty much. Oh, wow! <laughs> oh my gosh! I feel like I'm in ceremony right now. I am. I am. We are in ceremony. But I, um, yeah, it's so interesting, right? Like, it, if you do all these things, if you sacrifice yourself, if you give everything that you have, and you're left completely depleted, then you'll get the thing. You know, it's always mm-hmm. like kind of this trick this dog trick do all yeah, these and spins and it, then it's i'll give just, you a treat it's a, it's a dangling carrot and like mm-hmm. the people who are holding the carrot aren't even the ones benefiting it's the people who hired the person holding the carrot that are like mm-hmm. legs up and really like organizing the entire exploitation system of not just the earth's resources but human bodies as a resource for labor so it's important to remember that joy is very disruptive pleasure is very disruptive and Mm. literally having peace and having time and space in your day is extremely disruptive to the system that just like wants nothing but your time all the time so um it's really lovely and i know that i'm speaking from a place of privilege but i was definitely in wage labor for a long time and i don't think i even had a sense of freedom until i started creating things on my own charging what I felt like I was worth and knowing that the right people were going to come in to support and they absolutely have and do. So um, I, I just absolutely love the, the gift of creators and that I really feel that in the automation of so many systems in this world from cashiers, maybe not being a thing anymore to even people that like self-driving cars and like this highly automated system where like human labor is now like, being moved and pushed out because it's too expensive, that what we're going to end up with is a world of creatives and people that actually are can tune into their artistic nature for exchange. And that's actually how things were in 
these older times was people who participated in a craft from the beginning to the end. And it wasn't until like Henry Ford started like automating these kinds of tight, dispensable work machines that people actually like moved away from knowing a craft from the beginning to the end. And it's nice to actually see a return of crafts people and people who are artists and creatives because that is something that no one can do but us. And mm. we can do it for each other. And as you mentioned before, like we can make beauty everywhere that we mm. go. And that is the highest honor. Um, that is what the mushrooms do is they create beauty all over the earth and they help the earth be a beautiful place. And if we are acting in our highest power, I think it's to actually make earth a very beautiful place. And I hope that we all feel a call to do that soon. Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that um, ironic given our previous uh, conversations? <laughs> and what's really funny though is like Amen um, comes from Amen Ra, which is the sun god of Kemet. So mm. now he's basically just hollering out to the sun. <laughs> so yeah. I... I want to hear about your journey because you speak so beautifully about all of these topics. Like, how did you even get here? Where, where was the thread of interest that kind of led you to this path? Thank you so much for asking about my story. My father was a Christian, devout Christian. And so I grew up going to church. I grew up spending time in like theosophical, you know, conversation about morality and just the basics of the Bible and children's stuff, the things I needed to know to, you know, the Bi Bible being a, it's like basic instructional book before leaving earth, something like that. It was like what they used wow, to say the acronym. instructional book. Before oh. leaving earth. So it's like basic instructions oh. before leaving earth. There you go. So yeah. To make it into heaven and live out your insurance policy. <laughs> exactly. To reap the benefits of your life, your soul's insurance policy. So yeah, the book is sus. You know, there's some cool parts about it. Less than the lessons that were being taught, I was really interested in reading the Bible. So I was reading like King James versions. Um, and I was like kind of really interested in reading the Bible and passages. So I, I took to the book of revelation. I was like super into like the dark, weird, like prophetic shit going on in the Bible. And I read through Genesis a few times and just like found a lot of weird inconsistencies. Like there's two or three different creation stories just in Genesis. And I had a lot of questions. I just was like, not really, I wasn't getting the continuity. There was a lot of continuity errors. And then, you know, there are certain characters in the book, like Mary Magdalene and these like incredible folks. And I was like, how come there's like less on these people and like more on these folks and Oh, Exodus. Okay. What was the conflict in Egypt? And like, what, what was going on in Egypt? And so actually like as, as a historical document, the Bible is kind of a strange place. And so my dad was really committed to higher education. He grew up, um, well, he was born in El Paso, Texas in poverty. Um, his mother was a single mother of like five kids and she's a Mexican woman who was married to a black man. And at the time it was unlawful to be wed interracially. And so they lived a lot of their days in Mexico because the prejudice was less strict. It wasn't even legal for them. Their marriage was not even seen as legitimate in the United States. When was um, inter that? Interracial marriage didn't really come through legally until about the 40s. Wow. Even maybe later than that, uh, maybe the 60s. So my dad lived in South Central LA and really fought tooth and nail to make it into USC, uh, University of Southern California, which is a prestigious school even today. Mm -hmm. So he worked his ass off and made sure that my sister and I were well taken care of on the education side. So it's like, we didn't have Saturday morning, Sunday morning cartoons. Like we had to watch like Nova and PBS and like History Channel and like Nat Geo and like boring shit, like Turner Classic Movies and all this old black and white stuff. And it was boring. And I'm really glad that he did that because, you know, it like gave us this like, honestly, separation from pop culture like at a really young age and it made it really hard honestly in some ways to relate to my peers 
I felt very outcast a lot because the things that I kind of grew up being interested in, the other kids like weren't interested in. And so also because of being a mixed race person growing up, I was very isolated because I went to predominantly white school and I just hung out with like the few like black and brown kids that went to our school and we had our own issues at home and things. And so we were really invisible to the faculty. And so I spent a lot of time by myself in the sandbox and like exploring the playground and the trees and just looking at insects and just like letting bees fall on me when all the other girls were like, oh my God, a bee, a bee. And like, I was just like sitting in an observation of this bee and just, you know, just trying to understand the nature of the natural world around me. And so I lived like a weird kid. I got bullied a lot for that. And I grew up as a weird, oh, you're weird, you're weird. I, I can't even count how many times I've been called that. And I then started going to Christian camps. And so the summer camp, so cringy, it was called Indian Village, ran by all white folks. And they had a sleeping in teepees. And we all had like a little leather arrowhead that we could like punch our names into. And some of the tasks that we could do to like win these beads on our necklace was like to recite Bible verses. So I learned an entire chapter of the Bible and recited it verbatim to one of the camp counselors. And I earned like a very special eagle claw. And like, I just kind of got really interested in understanding this stuff. And I think I was 11 and one of the most impactful summers I ever had was I was sitting by a fire all night because they had like an initiation ceremony for some of the older kids. And they were singing songs, devotional songs to like Jesus by a fire. And I had a transcendental experience as an 11 year old where when people eat the mushrooms, sometimes they talk about like merging with the universe and like getting connected to like divine source consciousness. And I felt very much that, and I just kind of got blasted wide open to this like higher space of unconditional love, reverence for a divine power, the understanding that I was not insignificant and at the same time, extremely minuscule on the, in the grand scheme of things, but like loved by a creator. And so I wrote into this giant journal that they had out for everyone, just pages on pages of devotional reverence to a higher power and a higher source of consciousness. And I took it to my counselors and I was like, something is changing in me and I, and I don't know what to do. And I was trying to explain to them how significant it was like maybe the most significant thing that ever happened to me. And they just didn't have any like skills to really like recognize that this was like a spiritual awakening or whatever we can call it. This is the first time I ever touched source and I'd been going to church for a long time. And so, yeah, I touched source at that time, which was really cool and interesting. Do you think and it was because you memorized that passage? <laughs> it was, I had a lot. And now that I know it had a lot to do with sitting around a fire, singing devotional songs all night mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I have indigenous ancestry. And just because mm -hmm. these are the words and throughout colonization, a lot of Mexican people have adopted Christianity as their faith, but within them is like an indigenous relationship to source. And it just kind of gets like commingled with some of the traditional beliefs. And so even when I sit ceremony today, that's exactly what it looks like at night around a fire, singing devotional songs to source. So this was just in English, but the vibration and the, and the tonality and the feeling was all the same. And uh -huh. so it was actually like, that was like the first call back to the sacred fire with medicine songs. And that is literally how I sit like to this day with the sacred mushroom. And I got introduced to it, like at a Christian, like, church camp, which is incredible. So, I mean, just weird experiences like that throughout. And yeah, my interest in like esotericism and mysticism and, you know, especially ancient Egypt. And it's been such a deep, um, I've just been a searcher for a long time. And I think I was just kind of born a searcher and a seeker and still seeking, you know, but have been able to find some some things that make sense. And so that's why I share them with people on podcasts and in a lot of different educational faculties, because there are a lot of other seekers and there's a lot of bullshit information. And so I'm just here to share what I've learned. Mm. 
Thank you for sharing. I I love hearing your stories and I feel like I relate to you a lot in that the seeking nature, you know, and and also like I've I, you reminded me of an experience I had where I was at a a silent meditation retreat. It was like kind of like a really strong moment for me, but I was singing. It was a silent meditation retreat, but we were every morning we would sing devotional songs and it happened to be like a Jewish silent meditation retreat. So we would sing songs in Hebrew. And that was the only time we would sing was in the morning. And I had one morning, maybe like this, the sixth day, it was like 10 days. And it was, it was like that, a transcendental, beautiful Mm -hmm. connection. I feel like the voice, you Mm -hmm. know, is such a powerful portal to creator. It absolutely is. And I grew up singing in church choir and I, I feel for a lot of my brothers and sisters who are like raised up in some kind of organized religion that a lot of our talents and skills were kind of refined and born into the service of like this kind of God. And some of us even rejecting those parts of ourselves, that that creative element of ourselves. And so it's inc- it's incredible to actually come back to singing in a way that's, I'm connecting with source through song in a in a way that isn't feeling forced that it's feeling like I want to amplify my voice for creator and in the ways that I, I have come to know creator, not the ways that I'm being taught. I should relate to creation because all through that time, we never sang once to mother earth. Not one time it was always to Holy father, Jesus, you know, barely even Mary, like, but there was no emphasis on the ground that we're walking on and sharing our carbon dioxide singing to plants. Like how can you, how do you even pray, you know, without honoring the God in everything? It also really comes down to a compulsory education system and like Loki and inherent distrust of like mothers and mother communities. And I think, and what I'm seeing and perceiving is that there is a need for childcare and that need is now being outsourced where in other spaces and places and times where there was more of like common space, common village type environments, not just village type environments, but like community environments and rural environments where we have extended family, you know, intact. Um, The nuclear family has absolutely set down the foundation for compulsory education and compulsory schooling at a really, really young age and the need for outsourcing childcare and nuclear families is a imperial construct as well. There are a lot of obviously instances of mother, father, child, even in like ancient Egypt and in throughout Africa and in other places all over the world. But I think a lot of these concepts were imported here to North America because even a multiple gender expression, a multiple partner expression, even in some parts of um, the global South that we wouldn't even call in like our male ancestors or even like denote like patrilineal uh, relations because they didn't even have the technology to accurately point if the person who is your father is actually your father. So, you know, is actually like your matrilineal, you know, that's your genetics basically. So it's, it's really interesting to see how so many grown folks did not go through the educational system that they would really want to choose. I think a lot of it is because of compulsory education. And also I love my, my sister, Leslie, she runs a platform called Latinx parenting, which is like a decolonizing Latinx parenting perspective. She talks about adult supremacy. And I think that's a really Mm. incredible name for it. And I just Uh want to let that sink in is adult supremacy. Because there's this belief that adults somehow have it all figured out and that what we say goes and children are to be seen, not heard. And children should not be given any sort of agency in their, in their decision-making. And so much of the trauma that we have is because adults have forced their decision-making processes on us as young people. And we are pretty much picking up the pieces of that. There's so much in everything you say where I'm just like, wow. But yeah, I mean, there's, 
layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of supremacy that have been created and the one of adults of ageism, you know, of, you know, it's interesting because the actual people that we should respect, these like wisdom keepers are elder elders, we're outcasting. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. so much authority gets put into like our parental, mm-hmm. you know, our, wherever our parents lie in the stack of, of age. And, mm-hmm. and it's, yeah, it's interesting because it's like, you're important until you're not. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. we're going to send you out. And, you know, and yeah, I've seen so much value and so much grace in communal living and communal intergenerational households. You know, mm-hmm. it's actually like mm-hmm. a, a built-in perfect system where the younger parents are like a laboring group and grandparents tend to grandchildren and grandchildren give this life expression of curiosity and love and understanding through exploration and then older folks and elders can endow wisdom and set moral parameters from such a young age and it doesn't always work out like that a lot of people are harmed by their grandparents i was certainly harmed by my grandparents and these models that should be working out perfectly are not because even the the environment that it's trying to exist inside of is so unbelievably flawed and broken and that intergenerational trauma. And honestly, the buzzword of intergenerational trauma is very trendy, but I don't think any trauma is not intergenerational. (laughs) It's a strange thing to call, like to specify different traumas, which I'm like, not really like all is passed down and all shows up in how people are parented. If you look at really any traumatized individual, I think a lot of it comes down to how they're parented and the way that their their parents treated them. Mm. And even if the trauma existed outside of the home, that children couldn't come to their parents for reclamation, being reabsorbed into the family unit to be absorbed in love is also like, it's the second wave of that trauma. It's like the first thing that happened is the initial break. But when those things happen, aren't we supposed to be able to have access to a fallback group that can really help bring us back together? And I think that what prolongs trauma is actually not having a foundation or adults that really care about us to be able to help us repair and have coping skills that are healthy and happy and Mm. do the good work of reintegrating ourselves back together. And so honestly, I think we just really need to understand that adult supremacy and ageism, like we should not be hitting and harming kids, period. Like, I just think that's so foundational. I think we just need to have an understanding that children deserve to be protected and cared for. And that that is actually what's going to set us up for better futures. And I absolutely find that parents who are engaging with earth medicines like psilocybin and even ayahuasca and some of these other medicines like peyote as well, that they are doing such a wonderful, such wonderful work with their kids. Mm. And that is the stigma that we're honestly up against because of the drug war is this this thinking that because you engage in mind altering activity, in this particular kind of mind-altering activity that you sit in ceremony or raise your kids in a different way that somehow you're causing harm. When I just don't think that the caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol culture has done any better in raising kids. And that's why I sit in advocacy work for parents and intergenerational family living, community family living, and entheogens, because I've just seen so much so much benefit to these kids. And that's Mm. the most important thing in the world. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to respond because I'm like, yes, 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 yes. yes." First of all, I just went, I had the great privilege of visiting um, the Yawanawa village in the state of Akri, the village of Matum, their indigenous people from uh, the Amazonias. And while I was there, I stayed in my teacher's house with her mother and all the grandkids. 
because they live with their grandparents. You know, their mother's away working, she's doing things, and they take care of the grandkids. And I was like, this makes perfect sense. You know, you, you're raised by many mothers, many fathers. You know, one kid's crying. There's a 10-year-old that picks up the kid. The grandparents are watching the kids in the morning. They all have incredible life skills. Like the 14-year-old has kids over her shoulder. She knows how to change diapers. I'm like, I'm 31. I have no idea how to take care of a child. Like, you know what I mean? Like this, this education thing we're talking about. It's like they know how to do all of these things. I feel totally useless. And I'm just like, this makes so much sense, you know, from a, from a way of just taking care, Mm -hmm. you know, of, of community support and all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree that our Mm -hmm. system is broken, you know, in the Mm -hmm. West and the way that we, our structures are built and how we support our elders. Like, you know, again, like we outcast our elders. Like I would love for my grandparents to take care of my children, but the way everything's set up, how does that even work? I don't right. live close to them. So it's just, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. And mm-hmm. I'm glad you were so able to see that. And it's also really beautiful to just consider that through our decision-making process that we can try to make those things more possible. And as we kind of do the legwork, and I think that's kind of the selfless work of who we are and what we're doing is when we disrupt and change the system, it's not you and me that's going to benefit. it's like we're stopping a moving train Mm -hmm. and it's going to take me and it's going to take my son. It's going to take my family. It's going to take their kids. It's going to take their children's children to bring it back. And Mm -hmm. I really trust that we're here at a good time. And I think about people like Martin Luther King, who literally had these dreams and visions for equity and equality in the world that he didn't even get to really envision and not even got to envision the entirety of his whole life. Hmm. He very much could have well lived into these days. And that was even cut short because he had a very dangerous idea. Mm -hmm. And so we have some dangerous ideas right now. And I really just trust in, in the sheer amount of fuerza and force when we understand that us as a collective body is so much more powerful than us as individual people, that the people who own the most are actually the few and we are the many. And so when we recognize how much power we really have, when we believe in each other, when I put my hand on your shoulder and I look at you and I remind you that you are a powerful person, that you have the ability to exact transformation on this earth, that when people really believe in their sense of freedom and recognize that and claim that shit, we're going to see the world that we're trying to create, but it's going to, it's going to take some time. And I really trust that people have patience because this is a long, long walk and it's so worth it to be here during some of these, these changing times, because as we said, 2,600 years, well, it'll probably take 2,600 years to undo all of the things and do so with a lot of intention and focus and refinement of our skills. Mm. I'm here for it though. Let's do it. (laughs) I'm here for it too because I, yeah, I, I can't, I can't, I just literally can't go the other way. I was physically sick, like physically Mm -hmm. sick. I was manifesting all kinds of sickness and, and now I am healthy. Thank, Mm -hmm. thank goddess. So yeah, but yeah, it also took me down the path of, of healing through psychedelic medicines and all kinds of esoteric healing arts and all of these things because the Western world couldn't help me, <laughs> just yeah. literally couldn't help me. So let's yeah. talk about that because because there is a force that we're up against with the drug wars and all these kinds of things because I see parents who are walking these beautiful paths as well. Mm-hmm. And their children are like bright and beautiful and like mm-hmm. in the mud and having the best time. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, just bright, bright families. And so I, mm-hmm. yeah, I want to talk more about that because I do see it as like this great opportunity for healing, like parents who are actually doing the real work, whether you drink medicine or not, or you partake in medicine or not, like there's a deep work and reverence that's taking place within these communities. And so, yeah, I'm curious to, to hear more about that and and how, how you parent with, with these practices. So for example, my beloved and I, we've been together for eight years. And eight. eight wow. Eight years. You go. 
<laughs> it's going. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he doesn't partake in medicine very often. Mm-hmm. And yet he parents at similar grounded and sturdy compassion levels as I do. Mm. And as you mentioned, you know, you don't have to be a microdosing parent or like whatever to be a good parent. I think a lot of people actually just have this integrated sense for their, their own balancing system and like can be reflective and like approach their kids from a just and loving way. And so I think people like assume, Oh, you know, Michaela's partner must also be like sitting in ceremony all the time. And like, also like really into plant medicine. And it's really funny because they're honestly not that much. And there are so many other ways that we integrate medicine into our family life. Like if I'm going to hold a ceremony, for example, and we usually sit in groups together and it's a long night. It's like a 24 hour experience. You know, my partner is watching Martin and my partner is making sure that Martin is fed and is getting to bed and then wakes up with him in the morning. And, you know, our son will ask like, oh, where's mom? He's like, oh, she's at ceremony. She's in ceremony. And he's holding it down so that I can do my sacred work in the world. And I think that's where like a beautiful, like dynamic balance of not gender roles, but like these natural emergences of personality. He folds laundry with me and we did cloth diapering and like, we were just doing like laundry on laundry on laundry. And it wasn't like, oh, well, mom has to cook and she has to fold laundry and she has to tend to the children while I work, but she's, mom is doing all this domestic labor. He's an artist and he recognizes that I'm also an artist and makes room for me by taking on basic domestic tasks that I can pursue my gifts and my art. And I think that's been the greatest disservice is the balance of labor and like the balance of who's responsible for what part of the parenting experience. And domestic labor is so heavy and it's a lot of work. And just for him to be involved in some of those everyday tasks allows me to be a a better medicine person because I know when I come home, I'm not gonna have like, a whole mountain of chores. Like I should actually come home and integrate with my family. I walk in through the door, all my baskets in hand. I'm like absolutely exhausted and drained. And people ask, well, how do you integrate these big experiences? Cause I'm like sitting sometimes with like three grams and the most I ever sat with was nine grams. And I'm coming home from these experiences. And it's like a Sunday morning and like my son is beaming up and he runs to hug me and I'm like, you know, deep in in like integrating my process. And then like my partner's there and we just get to sit on the couch and like, I can talk to him about the things that I saw and like journal with my son. And sometimes we watercolor together. And I just have found that there doesn't have to be a separation Mm. between a person's medicine path and the way that they parent their kids. It can all actually be very, have extreme continuity. And I think that's actually what creates harmony among the family unit is like when there aren't these like hard lines of kids aren't allowed past this door or like you don't know about these things until you're of age. It's like there's an age appropriate discussion for anything on the planet. And I really just feel that entheogens really can have a way of harmonizing and with sitting in high dose ceremony that's what that can look like my son has sat in ceremony with me he woke up in the middle of the night during the ceremony one night my mom was watching him and he actually the only and best space for him to be was in ceremony and you know what it actually did it called my mom to be in ceremony i was trying to create a hard line and the merge will always happen Medicine and family will always happen. If the kid is there, they're going to want to find you. And he's too. He really, we still have a close bond. And so he came into the ceremony and then my mom can see what I do. Hmm. And we have this intergenerational shared experience where like my mom can see how safe her grandbaby was and how safe I was and how happy everyone else was. And I'm serving Hape and Martin is nursing on my breast and it's very much, you know, even a little bit of hot bay, like got sprinkled on his nose and he like sneezed and we're like, well, now he's trying hot bay for the first time. And, and that's all okay. Like we have to also operate with medicines that we feel are safe 
for even people as young as Martin. And he's actually coming to an age now where in some traditions he would start ingesting. So that's, as you mentioned, the drug war, what we're up against. Sure. I think maybe it's a, it's a safe idea to talk about the microdosing mom. And I've been in a lot of articles around those things. Oh, look, these mothers are microdosing. Cool. Like microdosing moms are the new wine mom. Like it's just real easy to talk about that, but it's not as easy to talk about women who high dose, women who hold ceremony and they have children or even families that are choosing to start integrating medicines with their kids. That's the next step in this conversation is young people, teenagers having a relationship with medicine. And that's been coming up a lot lately is my son is autistic and I really feel like mushrooms would benefit him. What do I do? And I can't wait. I can't wait for that discussion because our teaching and our knowledge tells us that these substances are inert, that they're safe. I've watched three-year-olds drink ayahuasca before. Why would psilocybin be any different? Why would my son as a four-year-old or a five-year-old not benefit from psilocybin if I, as a 19-year-old, benefited from psilocybin? So, you know, I don't know if that's a PG-13 topic, but I just really feel like if we're talking about no hard lines, why would there be a hard line with this age Mm -hmm. conversation? So, Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I, yeah, I feel so much in my in my heart and in your heart, like how deeply this runs for you and the communities that you work with and that you serve. And I have a lot of respect, a lot of respect because I know it takes a lot of courage and trust and faith. And, and yeah, I have a lot of respect for all of those questions too, because I think in this time, like, yeah, in indigenous cultures, you drink medicine when you're born, you know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, it was in and while you're milk, pregnant. Right? Yeah. Right. And <laughs> yeah. while you're pregnant, like it's, it's super different in the West where we kind of have um, created a lot of fear around these things, you know, like these things come from plants. Like you, it's like not, it's a mushroom or it's a tea. Like it's not, you know, it's not like, you know, that it may be different to talk about medicines that are created in a lab, even, you know, the ones that grow on a vine or on, in the dirt, So, yeah, I think that honestly kind of also comes back to the hijacking of decentralized systems for medical care. Mm -hmm. And during the like witch trials in Europe, that most of before then, most of the medicines had come from land and the people who were tending land knew how to use these medicines. And then during that time those kinds of actions and also reproductive actions, like knowing what were abortifacients and knowing what would, you know, make you pass a pregnancy, for example, Mm -hmm. um, reproductive actions became outlawed as part of the witch trials. And so actually the removal of people from their knowledge and being able to practice with plants got largely removed and stigmatized and criminalized, honestly, for practicing their folk medicines. And that's what we're living in today is that we call folk medicine alternative medicine when really, if we think about the timelines, that Western medicine is actually the alternative where in mm-hmm. most parts of the world, all of the medicines come from plants and come from earth and come from your grandmother's. Yeah. And and the way that we've been like convinced that those medicines somehow are insignificant or not as useful. I and and I want to actually like pause right now for everybody listening because I'm I'm feeling this within my own being. But just like this, if we can all just take a and just like let out whatever we're feeling because it's just like ugh, there's so much ugh, 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 like all these things, <sighs> yeah. you know. Like, yeah, ugh. it feels more frustrating for me. <laughs> just like you guys, like this is a short game. They're playing such a short game, and right? indigenous people are so long game. It's like ridiculous. Oh my gosh, they're so it's, long game. It's long game. This is long term, and it's selfless. And I think selfish people think in the short term. So we're just living within a selfish context, and that makes me feel disgusted and enraged, and also just highly disappointed. And like. Who did this to you? What made you feel like you had to act this way on the earth? Because you're also traumatized. Colonization is a trauma response. Yes. Colonization is a trauma response. And you were talking about this before that the trauma is like passed down. Yeah. Like it's passed down because we were killing our brothers and sisters forever. Mm -hmm. And that's disgusting, you Mm -hmm. know, like, and 
you know, we weren't able to take in our brothers and sisters because we were competing and mm-hmm. comparing and sending our sisters to witch burnings and, you know, all of this scarcity and like, mm-hmm. yeah, we have collective trauma. Yeah, medicines are helpful. Yeah, connecting with the earth is going to be really helpful. And you should rest. <laughs> we're coming into the fall. I mean, I think it's just perfect to mm-hmm. for this podcast to come out, you know, and coming around the autumnal equinox and just that slowing down. We've had like a really big summer. A lot of interesting things have happened. And, you know, I, this is reversible. I think that's the coolest part. Yes. I think that's the coolest part is that the current framework is temporary. And Mm -hmm. that gives me a lot of hope, just like seasons, a reason, a season or a lifetime. I mean, this has been a long season. But it certainly is not a lifetime. And the people that are here for the long game, we will always be here. As much as they've tried to eradicate and murder off parts of ourselves, um, there will always be people that will remember and are doing the work to remember. And I don't want to take that for granted. It's part of prophecy. It's part of the prophecy that these children are going to come up. They're going to learn the traditional ways and the ways of the elders. And they're going to bring it back to save the world. And... I think we're very much Mother Earth is on our side right now. The children have their ears to the ground right now. And it feels like a great privilege um, coming back to the mushroom teaching about what is our purpose. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people are activating in their purpose to to swing, maybe not the pendulum in the other direction because we don't want to keep this thing swinging, but to kind of return back to to the circle. And I just love what what y'all do with creating circles and helping people also create circles within their own consciousness and to move from hierarchy, you know, facing up triangle energy, ascension consciousness, you know, let's ascend, let's transcend, let's get out of the body. Like let's escape, you know, spaceship earth. And for a lot of us, we're, we're bringing our consciousness way down again. We're descending consciousness we're bringing the consciousness back into the value of the body, back into the value of the soil, mycelial webs, and all that around us. I think that ins- that insurance policy thing that we talked about earlier, just like, well, if you just do good things on the earth for people and you pay your tithings and you give to the church and you participate in this programming, maybe you'll be able to leave planet earth. And I'm like, planet earth is a great place. Why the fuck would you ever want to leave? I mean... I'm not in any interest to leave earth. I think this is my favorite home I've ever been in. And, you know, I think it's really easy for people who colonize and imperialize and don't feel like this is their home to treat the earth in a way that it's just this, this stepping point for some greater thing. And for the people who have been here for a really long time and really appreciate what it is to be here, really actually want to sit to preserve mother earth and not have a plan to escape you know, mm. so mm. it feels, it feels good to be sitting here with you and I'm just so honored and so grateful to have landed in this beautiful space and to have honestly sit with circular consciousness with you. Cause, um, it just, it's this never ending care. And I don't think the compassion ever dies out. And I feel a lot of compassion for your organization and I feel the compassion that you have for me. So I'm just really honored to be mm. here. I'm really honored too. Oh my gosh. It's been such a pleasure. And I wanted to say before, we're back, baby. <laughs> we're back and we're stronger than ever. It's true. No, and I feel that way. And all, to all the women listening too, like, you know, the team's, the team's here. <laughs> we're all assembling. We're all taking our roles. There's a place for everyone, you know, like mm. bring your gifts, bring your magic, bring your voices. Please bring your voices. I think that's actually what makes us stronger is the yes. uniqueness of perspectives that we all carry. And a place for us to share them. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's opportunities like this that I think spread really wonderful ideas. And I hope it, I hope it just catches like wildfire to just burn and purify and compost um, the muck that we've been living in and turn it into something that we can make a beautiful garden out of. Yes. 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 So for our final question of our podcast, if you were to speak a message to our audience from the divine mother herself, our mother earth, whatever you connect with, what would she have you say? (sighs) 
that everything, everything that you've been ever told is dangerous and is satanic and is dark or dirty or not worthy of your attention is your superpower is what's going to make you strong when you lean into it. If anyone ever has called you weird for something, it is the thing that makes you great. And anything that someone has ever called ugly about you is what makes you beautiful. That's it. Mm, Thank you so much, Michaela. I am deeply honored to be interviewing you. It is such a pleasure to feel your spirit and to hear your wisdom and your ideas. I just, it's, it's been such an honor. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Omateo. Glatsakamati. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about the Global Sisterhood, you can follow us on Instagram at the Global Sisterhood, or you can tune in to one of our programs. Just go to globalsisterhood.org. It is such a privilege and such an honor to speak with all these amazing women and to continue to speak with you. If you would like to join one of our circles or programs and dive in deeper and have these conversations yourself with us, we would love to invite you in deeper, sister. So just go to globalsisterhood.org to learn more. Okay, talk to you next time.